When we look out at the night sky, most of the stars we're seeing are actually very, very close by. The stars you can see with your naked eye are exclusively within the Milky Way galaxy, and most of them are within just a thousand light years or less of Earth. And surprisingly, when we look at all the young stars, all the young stars that are nearby, every single one of them appears to be surrounded by the same giant bubble of gas and plasma. Scientists have theorized this might exist for about 50 years, but recent evidence has finally shown, guess what? This local bubble actually exists and it may be the source of every single nearby young star that we have close to the sun. What is this local bubble and how did we figure this mystery out? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. It was about 14 million years ago that a chain of events began and led to the creation of what we call the local bubble. It really is an origin story about how we can explain how the stars that have just recently formed close by us, how they all began. And here to help us understand this, here to take us through this discovery and how we know what we think we know are Dr. Katherine Zucker, a Hubble Fellow at the Space Telescope Science Institute, Professor Alyssa Goodman, a professor at Harvard University, and Professor Joao Alves at the University of Vienna. Catherine, Alyssa, and Joao, I'm so pleased to welcome you here and uh, have a great time here on the Starts With a Bang podcast. Sounds like fun, Ethan. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Thanks. Yeah, this is our first uh, this is our first podcast with multiple guests, and I'm really excited that we were able to get all three of you together at once. So, one of the things I wanted to start with is when when I think about star formation, I normally think about it as we have some sort of cloud, some sort of molecular cloud of gas, and something happens to it. Either it gets big enough that it will start sort of form gravitational instabilities and start to collapse, or some sort of shockwave will run into it, or some sort of, you know, massive object will pass nearby and will exert tidal forces on it. But something has to happen to trigger that cloud to collapse. Um, I want to start off just very basics. Is there anything wrong with that picture, or is there anything incomplete about that picture of thinking about, okay, we have a cloud of gas, it's got to collapse, it's got to radiate its heat away, and only then can it form stars? Well, there is, there is an, uh, a very boring picture of star formation that we can offer you, too, uh, where you just have a cloud of gas that's kind of sitting there, and it has enough of its own self-gravity to just very slowly collapse. And if it doesn't have too much spin and it has enough gravity to collapse, it will very slowly, supposedly anyway, make a star without being triggered. It's just that all of those processes you mentioned make it a lot easier to get stars to form from these blobs of gas. 
So there is this monolithic collapse scenario, or at least I, I think of it as monolithic collapse, where I'm some giant ga gas cloud in space and I just got big enough or enough time passed that I very slowly over very, very long time scales collapse. And that, that can trigger star formation as well. But like you said, um, when you look at most of the stars cumulatively, um, we think that there's some sort of event that's going to trigger the collapse of these clouds. Um, is that is that fair to say? Well, I th yes, I think so. So it's not that the cloud collapses mon monolithically. The cloud, uh, and we know this uh, from maybe the 80s, they have this, um, what we call dense cores, but sort of uh, stellar embryos, you know, very roundish, very dense, and those are the parts of the cloud that collapse and form. Most of the cloud actually doesn't even realize it's forming stars. So, so it's sort of like when I take a look at some of the close nearby star forming regions, something like the Orion Nebula or something like the Omega or the Eagle Nebula, or even if I want a bigger one, I can look at the Tarantula Nebula in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is about 165,000 light years away. Uh, and in all of these, I can see a combination of, I'd say, uh, four different things. Uh, one thing that I can notice in them is there are young stars in there. There are stars that have already formed within the last few million years. Um, another thing that I can see is there are regions of ongoing star formation, where star formation is actively happening right now, where I have new stars that are being born, and I have gas clouds that are surrounding these protostars, um, and that's a second thing that's there. And then there's a third thing where I can say, okay, here I have large densities of gas clouds. I have gas clouds that are really, uh, you know, in the process of collapsing right now, but they haven't quite gotten there yet. And finally, I have regions where that gas is present, but it doesn't seem to be doing anything interesting. It just is kind of hanging out there at sort of this diffuse level. Um, is that, you know, that's at least how I conceive of it. Is that a fair way to conceive of what's going on? Or are there... Is there something else I should be taking into account as well? No, we think that's, uh, we all agree. We're nodding here that this is a pretty good picture for how we think uh, the gas behaves in these star nearby and far away star forming regions. So perhaps what are you trying, I don't know if you're asking this. So, so star formation is not a problem of missing physics or there's something we don't know what it is that's causing these clouds to collapse and form these beautiful nebulas that you mentioned. It's a matter of recipes. We, we're pretty much sure that it's all about gravity, turbulence, and magnetic fields. Um, we just don't know exactly which one is the most relevant during the phase of formation of the cloud and formation of dense cores and collapse of dense cores. So there's, it's, it's just a very complex problem. So what I tell my students all the time is what nature has to do is convert something that's the size of Austria uh, to the size of a, a one euro coin. That's that's the size scale we're talking about. Uh, how it does it, uh, it has to get rid of uh, angular momentum, it has to do a certain of the, uh, series of things. And the problem is, it's a very complex uh, situation and it's totally out of equilibrium. We like 
things in equilibrium, that's why we have this beautiful theory of stellar evolution. We don't have a theory of star formation because it's just a very complex problem. Yeah, part of part of the, the picture that you're painting explains what I was saying about how out of equilibrium it is because there's all these other stars that formed already in these regions that are forming lots of stars and that'll become important later in our story about the local bubble, but they do what's called generate feedback uh, in these regions and so there's hot material that comes off of those stars, there's photons that come off of those stars and they, they ionize the material around them and so they, they just basically mess stuff up really badly. Uh, which changes the balance of the physics that Chihuahua was talking about. And so, for example, if you just take magnetic fields, they don't matter where gas is not ionized at all. But if you if you have um, atoms that have had uh, you know electrons taken off of them so that they're ions, right? They can interact with magnetic fields, and that controls the gas. But if you don't have any of that, then it doesn't matter. And so. It gets really complicated, and a lot of people in our field really hate magnetic fields. And be, why did she mention that so early on? But anyway, that just gives you some idea of why having all these stars messing up the gas matters in subtle ways as well as the direct ways of carving out the kind of cavities that you see in the beautiful images. And the, the other thing that makes this really hard is that all of these processes that Alyssa is talking about, many of them take place over very, very different scales in the galaxy. And so star formation, we care about scales of entire large swaths of the galaxy. And it's the scale of these spiral features that form uh, in the disks like our Milky Way, all the way down to light year scales, so very, very tiny scales, the scales of uh, newly forming uh, protoplanetary disks. And so if you want to understand star formation, you have to understand sort of the physical processes that occur over this very, very vast range in science. Um, and so it's just been hard to piece together all of these things into a physical picture until very recently. You know, I have to say I'm so impressed with the three of you because in the first 10 minutes of our podcast, you have exposed sort of a uh, a dirty secret that I have been keeping for the past, I don't know, 80 podcasts that no one has exposed yet, which is that... Ethan, when you talk to us about what happens, you are painting this picture in broad strokes and you are saying what happens on average, what what is going to explain most of what's happening in the fewest number of steps. But in reality, we can look deeper. We can look in greater detail at what's going on. And when we do, we see that um, actually, some of the things you've said are more or less relevant on certain time scales or certain distance scales. And there are other processes that also play a role that come in and that if you want to really understand this top to bottom, inside out, uh, what happens to this one star over here in isolation that does manage to form when an Austria-sized uh you know, gas cloud manages to collapse down to a one euro coin. Um, yeah, um, that does happen sometimes. You will get a cloud of gas that's kind of off by itself that doesn't get perturbed by anything. And over really long time scales, enough of that gas can collapse down, shed angular momentum, shed linear momentum, uh, radiate heat away. It can form stars in there. And also in these turbulent regions, in these messy regions, you do have things like stellar winds, shock waves, magnetic fields, uh, all of these, all of these complicated processes that can both 
affect how large stars can grow and can also affect how star formation either proceeds or fails to proceed around it. So, um, you know, I, I want to thank you for that because it is, uh, it is worth keeping in mind that, look, depending on when we're looking, where we're looking, and what else is happening around the region where we're looking, um, whether we form stars or not, or what the mass function of those stars are, or how many stars we form, uh, all of that can change dramatically. And I think that's... Uh, that's a more comprehensive picture uh, than the one I would have painted without that without that input. Well, good. We're we're happy to help, and I just have to tell you that, um, I, as you described all that, a quote from a very prominent, now unfortunately deceased member of our department came to mind. Where I personally like to think of star formation as a challenging and fun subject, he used to say. It was a subject no self-respecting physicist would study because it's just too messy. Well, you know, physicists are not known for having a lot of self-respect in that regard. So uh, I think, I think, I think that's that's worth taking as a very good compliment. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we 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 do. We have we have these hard problems, right? We have these hard problems that we want to take on. We want to understand the whole universe inside and out from from subatomic scales up to the largest cosmic ones and everything in between. And guess what? Magnetic fields get involved. They're, you know, over the span of a galaxy, uh, magnetic fields aren't like they are on the Earth, right? We think of the Earth as like, here's this big magnetic dipole, and it comes from a core process in the Earth. Even when you look at the Sun, yeah, the Sun has a magnetic field, and if you go throughout the solar system, you can measure the magnetic field. But if you get close to the Sun, this is just one star, you're going to see all sorts of regions where the magnetic field flips and oscillates, and different regions have their own local magnetic field fields, they dominate. These local effects dominate the magnetic field of the sun, not the global overall dipole, uh, which might become important as you go farther away. In the galaxy, magnetic fields, we have these micro-gauss magnetic fields that exist all over the Milky Way galaxy, but they're not coherent. It's not like the Milky Way has one giant galactic dipole. Uh, typically, on scales of a few hundred light years, the magnetic field will change direction, orientation, will reverse itself. You will have these different magnetic field lines and sources that reconnect themselves. And it's overwhelmingly thought that these magnetic fields arise from stars. And it pains me to say that a little bit because I wrote a paper a while ago that they maybe they originate from before recombination happens in the early universe. And, and they might, but, but stars seem to play a really large role in galactic magnetic fields. And so I'm not at all surprised to hear, you know, look, if we want to understand star formation, you do, you need magnetic fields, you need magnetohydrodynamics, you need to understand feedback, you need to understand all of these messy things that as much as we like to say, oh, I'm just going to take these equations and I'm going to linearize them and I'm going to solve them and that's my answer, uh, in the real universe, things are often more complicated than that. And the messier an environment you get, or maybe I should 
should say, the more time and effort you spend understanding what the environment you're looking at is actually doing, uh, the more you realize that the physics in there is more complicated and you have to take all of it into account if you want to match what we simulate or what we theorize with what we actually observe. And, and one thing that's really hard is that uh, like this, like the same type of physical processes, so take stellar feedback, for instance, depending on the time scale and the spatial scale that you're looking at, that feedback can both enhance star formation, which is sort of what the, the work that we just uh, published in Nature a couple months ago, that's what we'll talk about today. So it can enhance star formation, it can enhance the production of these dense star forming regions or it can inhibit star formation. And so you have this like similar physical processes that can go both ways. And so you really have to look at sort of individual systems, but also the larger galactic environment in order to sort of unravel what's exactly happening um, with the interplay of these processes. Well, that's that's really interesting. So so when we talk about, you know, you you mentioned this work, which, uh, you know, really talks about the local bubble. And I'll just say, uh, you know, to, to put the conclusion at the end that we know that Earth sits in, a, I would say, a void that's about a thousand light years across, and it's surrounded by thousands of young stars that are clustered into maybe, uh, into maybe seven different star-forming regions. Um, but we see, um, you know, more prominent bubbles in other regions in space like we we have a nebula in our galaxy that's known as the bubble nebula we know that bubbles get blown by by all sorts of effects right you have uh you have supernovae you have outflows you have uh anything that can expel gas or radiation at high pressure can sort of ionize the neutral atoms that are around it that they can push um, you know, that they can create shocks, they can push interstellar gas outward uh, and create like an underdense region. Um, to, to not get into how this bubble was made, but rather how did we find that this bubble exists? Um, can you maybe can you maybe tell us sort of like why why we would have thought the earth might be? in one of these bubbles, why we might live in one of these bubbles in the first place. Because this this isn't a brand new idea, is it? This idea has been around for quite a few decades, hasn't it? Right. I mean, there's two parts of this story. One is that these sort of bubbles should exist um, due to what we'll call supernova feedback for one reason. And then the other one being that we live in a special one of those bubbles that's called the local bubble, and it's special because it's local. And our real expert in all this is uh, is Catherine. So we're going to turn it over to her to explain the evidence for both of those things. Yeah, so essentially you can think of the, the local bubble that the sun currently resides in. It is a region of lower gas density, so it has less stuff than the surrounding environments. And it's also hotter, so it's hotter than the surrounding environments. And it also contains more ionized gas. And so we've known all of those things for, for many decades. Um, so we've known since the 1970s that there's just been less stuff around us. Um, so essentially, one of the ways to tell this is you can, essentially, if there's a lot of stuff, um, essentially, there's these molecular, or these star-forming regions um, are composed of um, gas and also dust. 
and you can think of the dust as sort of like smoke. And you can imagine that if you um, had like a, a, a light bulb um, behind the smoke, that some of that light from that light bulb would be extinguished by the smoke in the foreground. Um, and so people back in the 1970s, they were looking at um, the properties of the light and the colors of the light, and they found that basically very far distances from the sun, um, that there was not a lot of evidence for this smoky uh, structure of the interstellar material around the sun. So there was just not a lot of stuff around us. Um, and then we found evidence for this X-ray emission um, that was likely local to us. Um, and so that's sort of ind indicative of the hot gas. And so it was the combination of the hot gas and the lack of a lot of uh, gas around us, uh, a lot of like sort of um, higher density gas around us, that pointed towards this conclusion that we were inside this bubble that we now call the Wolfe bubble. That's really interesting. So when I, when, when you, I love that smoke analogy, by the way, that imagine you've got a backlit source and you, uh, you blow smoke and that smoke is going to obscure um, the light wherever the smoke is densest. Uh, that makes me think very, very much of what I can see if I find some really dark skies and I look up at the Milky Way. When I look up at the Milky Way, I know there are stars all throughout it. There are stars in the plane, in the central bulge, in the thin disk, in the thick disk, there are stars everywhere. And yet when I look up at the Milky Way, I see these huge dark regions moving through the Milky Way. I see these huge dark nebulae that appear to be silhouetted against the backdrop of stars. And I think your analogy of it's like there's smoke in the way is is a fantastic one because that that would totally explain why, okay, with my visible light eyes, I can't see the background stars because the smoke blocks it. But if I can, you know, use infrared eyes like the COBE satellite or the two-mass satellite or any one of any number of infrared satellites has gone and looked, uh, they can see through that dust. That dust is not as good of an absorber in infrared wavelengths as it is in optical wavelengths. So there it is. Um, you can see those stars in the infrared but you only see the light blocking dust or, as you say, smoke. So what you're telling me is we've known for some time that the region around our sun doesn't have a lot of this dust, doesn't have a lot of this light blocking smoke. Um, and I would say that's, that's some pretty strong evidence that, hey, maybe there's more to the puzzle. So you mentioned that the next thing you would go to look at is x-rays. So can you tell me what, if if that's what we think, if we're like, hey, I don't find very much of this dust around here, uh, why would you go and look at x-rays next? What would looking in x-rays teach you about the local environment? Um, but Catherine's going to answer that in a second, but We've been whispering to each other here. Ooh, should we should we say anything about what he said about Kobe? And yeah, we should because um, you mentioned Kobe, which was the cosmic background um, explorer that looked at long wavelength infrared emission, and it's actually one of many telescopes that can do something else that helps us see the distribution of dust and material um, in the in the galaxy. So the thing that most people are familiar with is exactly what you said, which is the sort of smoky looking appearance of dark clouds. And they're called dark because they look dark on the sky um, around us. But those, and you're absolutely right that the, you know, telescopes like two mass can 
see the infrared light from stars through those clouds, which turns out later in our story to be very important to the 3D dust mapping technique and the change even in the infrared color of those stars. But one thing that we really should point out as an important source of data in this whole field is thermal emission from dust. And so that's what Kobe saw and what IRAS saw and Spitzer and Herschel and all these other famous beyond the atmosphere telescopes. And and even Planck more recently has seen it and mapped it exquisitely. Right. And Planck, Planck did something really crazy, which is it turns out there's a CO band where you can actually see the integrated light from molecular gas as well as from dust, but that's kind of a detail. But yes, um, and so anyway, what's really important is that all of that emission that you see is from the same material that you see in what gets called extinction or absorption, the stuff that looks black on the sky when you look at shorter wavelengths. And, and all of that gives you the two-dimensional distribution on the sky of, of dust, of this smoky material that's mixed in with the gas. And later, what we're going to talk about is how important it is to have three dimensions. But anyway, I, we should let Catherine answer your x-ray question first. Yeah, so the, the importance of the x-rays is that um, they're, all, they're associated with gas at very high temperatures, like a million Kelvin or more. And so there are, there are, we know that there are certain uh, phenomenon that happens that, that can produce that very, very hot million degree Kelvin gas. And one of them um, is, of course, supernovae. And so if you have a lot of supernovae explode, um, they can heat the gas. Um, and so you would imagine that if these supernovae explode, um, not only will they push uh, existing gas around, um, but they'll also uh, heat the gas up. And so you, essentially, if a lot of supernova went off, you would expect um, like a, a cavity where there is hot gas in the middle of the cavity and there is a, a thinner shell of denser gas on the outskirts of that cavity. Um, and that's the surface of the local bubble where we think, uh, where we know that stars are forming today. Um, and so we can sort of go back into this physical picture in more detail, but just for now, think of X-ray gas as uh, X-ray emission as being associated with very hot gas, where um, that gas can result from supernova explosions. I can, I can go along with that. We know that everything that gets absorbed uh, means energy gets absorbed and any energy that gets absorbed if you want your material to be in equilibrium otherwise it's just going to absorb 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 uh, and get hotter but things that get hotter also radiate they also radiate energy away so things are going to approach equilibrium in general energy in equals energy out so if you are absorbing energy then you are going to have to find some way to also emit energy things that are absorbing in one wavelength of light will radiate in other wavelengths of light so um Alyssa, as you were saying when you have um you know these clouds of gas that absorb uh, optical light, absorb visible light, what they're going to do is they're going to heat up and they're going to have their, you know, on an atomic or molecular level, they're going to have their electrons get bumped up to higher energy levels. And every once in a while, when you do that, you're going to get them cascading back down to a lower energy level. And when that happens, guess what? You are going to emit these emission lines that you talk about. So yeah, you're going to see these emission lines that allow you to say, ah, and here's this material radiating in this wavelength of light, and I can map it out. 
Um, and then you can say, okay, well, the stuff that absorbs a lot of energy because it gets superheated by a really energetic event like a supernova, that's not going to sit around at a few hundred Kelvin. That's going to get up to a few tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of Kelvin. And depending on how hot it gets, I will get either soft or hard x-rays. So then I can go look in the x-ray and I can say, okay, now I'm mapping out where recent supernovae have occurred because that allows me to say, okay, uh, supernovae are one of the things that are copious that can produce this, that can produce this super hot gas. So it sounds like by, um, I would say, it sounds like by looking at what is radiating in what wavelengths where, you can do some sort of like galactic archaeology and you can sort of say, okay, we are digging up the universe's history. We're not just getting a snapshot of what's happening right now. We're looking at what we're finding and that's enabling us to reconstruct what's happened uh, decades or millennia or even millions of years ago. Broadly, yes, but there's a there's a, a couple of missing pieces there. Um, one of them is that there are different kinds of radiation at different wavelengths, even at the same wavelength that are observed. And it sounds like a technicality, but it, it, it is actually important. There's a difference between uh, spectral line radiation, which is what you were talking about when you talk about things moving in a quantized way to different energy levels, and then a more continuum kind of black body radiation, which has to do with just a finite temperature that material, any kind of material is at. And then there's even other processes that can contribute at high energy that we won't talk about. But the thing that's important in terms of archaeology and tracing back history is that when you can do anything that measures the velocity of an object, and so sometimes that's observing spectral lines, particularly of gas, uh, where you can use the Doppler effect to measure velocities and trace things back in time, or critically in the story that we'll get more of as we talk, um, you can use proper motions and radial velocities of stars to measure their three-dimensional motions. And a lot of uh, what Catherine did in the, in the local bubble paper has to do with using those velocities to go back in time. And so from the radiation itself, without either something quantized or something moving where you can measure its velocity, it's hard to go back in time. But when you can add that time dimension, then it, then it's possible to do exactly what you're talking about. Well, maybe, maybe we should get into that right now. So, so Catherine, since you did the heavy lifting here, I guess, I guess this question will be for you. Um, you know, we have stars and gas and dust and plasma and, you know, maybe some other things uh, all around us in the galaxy. But if I wanted to turn a two-dimensional snapshot of the local universe into a three-dimensional snapshot, if I wanted to map out um, how far away are these objects, how fast are they moving towards us or away from us, if I wanted to get, you know, as comprehensive um, of a picture in that third dimension, in the depth, in the line of sight dimension, um, what do I need to measure and what do those measurements teach me? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and really, the, the, the mission that has revolutionized this field is the Gaia Space Mission, 
which had its first uh, major data release in 2018. And essentially, Gaia is so revolutionary because Gaia gave us the positions. Um, so it told us how far away from the sun each of these stars were, about a 1 billion in the Milky Way galaxy. And for many stars, it also gave us um, how they're moving um, in true 3D space. And so basically, Gaia has, has allowed us to not just figure out where these young stars are uh, in true physical space in our Milky Way galaxy, but also how they're moving. But there's a, an extra critical piece here, and is that uh, we don't just want to know what the young stars are doing, but we want to know what these gas clouds that are forming these young stars are doing as well. And so a lot of the work that um, this local bubble result rests on is based on a technique called 3D dust mapping. And essentially, um, we used this earlier analogy about uh, these, these star forming regions uh, being very smoky. And so not only will they extinguish the light, but they'll also change the colors of the stars, depending on where these stars are located with respect to this extinguishing material. Um, and so there have been a number of very advanced statistical techniques that actually model the effect that these smoky regions have on the colors of stars in order to map out not just where the young stars are, but also actually where these 3D dust, uh, these clouds are in 3D with respect to the stars. Um, and so one of the key results here is that when we map everything out, so when we map out not just the, the gas, but also the young stars in, in true physical space, then that's how we found that everything was on the surface of the bubble. Um, and actually, if you know, for the young stars in particular, um, if you know uh, where they are currently and how they're moving um, in the Milky Way galaxy, and you also know how old they are, you can actually um, figure out what trajectories they're on in the galaxy. And you can act, essentially turn back time and, and sort of reconstruct what the history of our, of our galactic neighborhood looks like over the past millennia. Um, and so Gaia is really the key mission here in combination with these new data science and 3D dust mapping techniques. Now that's kind of interesting because one of the things that I always worry about is, you know, is trying to trace your history back based on what you're observing today because that will take you as far back as you think you can reasonably go until some sort of interaction had occurred. For example, if I said, okay, um, where was the sun? 10 million years ago. Um, I can say, okay, well, let's look at how it's moving and let's look at the gravitational force of the galaxy. And based on how we're moving today, I can sort of make a trajectory and trace it back in time, just like you would for, you know, introductory physics and Newton's equations of motions. You trace it back and that's all fine. But then I have to fold in, okay, but I also know that there are other stars in the galaxy, and one of them, Scholz's star, that's about 20 light years away now, uh, seemed to have passed within our outer Oort cloud within the last 100,000 years. And if I go forward in time, I know at some point within the next 1 million years, there are going to be, uh, or 1.3 million years at least, there are going to be a number of close encounters of stars with the sun that happen again. So I would worry, you know, I can sort of trace back this, you know, where I expect a particular thing to have been, um, you know, if there were no other 
you know, things that interfered with it, but without that big 3D map and without having it being precise enough to know, here's the trajectory at which it intercepted all the other objects and here's how those gravitational encounters change that trajectory, um, I would worry like, oh, maybe my answers are not very precise or maybe I have to uh, trace things back farther or maybe I have to measure things with better precision to learn where any one individual object was. Is that a legitimate concern or is that something that with enough statistics, you know, you might not be able to precisely say where any one object was, but if you have a, a collection of objects that are all kind of moving together, you can say on average where they've been and where they came from. So I think I think you are right. Uh, there's a limit the, um, regarding the time that we can trace back and trace forward um, a star. There is all kinds of things in the galaxy. There's spiral arms. There's clusters. There's um, um, dust clouds, other stars, and what we're doing is uh, we're using. The velocities of the stars, as you said, we know the potential of the Milky Way, so we can predict, we can delineate the orbits of the stars, but you can only do that for about 20 million years to the future and 20 million years to the past. Beyond that, you have to deal with things that you don't know, interactions with other objects, and this is better revealed in the fact that we've been trying to find the siblings of the Sun, so the Sun is for 4.5 billion years, so we could imagine tracing back the Sun around the galaxy 20 times and find all the, the siblings of the Sun, and we can't, because the siblings of the Sun interacted over the last 4.5 billion years with other stars, with clusters, with spiral arms, and are now on different orbits, and we don't have information of, of this interaction, so we cannot really uh, look back uh, on where the siblings are uh, today. So yes, there are there, there is a limit. It's a, it's a chaotic system. We cannot uh, do it, uh, you know, at our own description. Yeah, but but also, um, as you say, you can't do it infinitely far back or arbitrarily far back. But the uh, figure you gave that you can trace it back pretty reliably for about twenty million years. Um, that's really interesting to me because when we take a look at the young stars we find, uh, we have many, many stars or collections of stars in our vicinity uh, within a thousand light years or so that we know have formed within the last 20 million years. You know, you have all sorts of ways of measuring the ages of stars or stellar populations. And so this sort of can be used to tell us, you know, we might not be able to trace back something like, um, you know, the Hyades, which is uh, an older and currently dissociating star cluster that's within a thousand light years of us. But when you look at some of the newer regions, some of the stars that have formed more recently than that, like within the last 20 million years, um, now that is information we can trace back. And I think if you're looking at something that's formed relatively recently, um, you know, now I sort of start to get excited about, well, what can we say about the relatively recent history of our local universe? Yeah, and so what basically how we stumbled upon this discovery is that we 
we were looking at um, the motions of all of these young star forming regions and the young, these young stars on the surface of the local bubble. And we found that if you trace back their, their motions over the past 20 million years, they all um, converge towards um, a consistent epicenter. Um, and so they're all c consistent with uh, expanding from roughly the same point. Um, and so they sort of have a, a common origin. And so it was essentially looking at their trajectories in the past and seeing where they are today that led us to this, um, this statement that uh, the local bubble has expanded over time, powered by these powerful supernova explosions over the past millennia. And as um, these uh, supernova went off, they released these shock waves and that created this expanding shell of dense gas. And as that uh, gas expanded outwards, um, pieces of that shell fragmented it and formed new stars. And so all of these baby stars are sort of riding outwards on this expanding shell, which explains why they have the motion that they do all pointing away from this common epicenter. Well, just, just, just to add to what Catherine just said, and what kind of what you were hinting, is that yes, we can now do a very accurate uh, star formation history over the last, I don't know, 20 to give and go to 50 million years, if you're brave. Um, and to, to, a, to a point that we, to a precision that we never have before. And, and this is going to be very uh, relevant for the next, for, for our work for the next couple of years. This is what basically what we'll be doing uh, around the local kiloparsec of the Milky Way. So you're you're going to have to forgive me because you're about to experience what you're probably going to look at each other and say, oh boy, that's a question that only a cosmologist would ask. So, um, <laughs> shoot, yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I worry about in cosmology all the time when it comes to how structures form is, did they form from a top-down scenario or a bottom-up scenario, where I think the difference is just the top-down is where the thing that happens on the largest scales collapses or dominates first, and then the stuff that happens on the small scales is sort of this like fragmentation effect, whereas a bottom-up is like, okay, you have things happening locally uh, on these smaller scales first, and then they sort of merge together or fuse together to form some sort of larger structure. So that's the difference between top-down and bottom-up just from a, a qualitative standpoint. So what you described for this local bubble um, seemed to me like this is definitively a top-down scenario where you had, you know, something happen and this bubble expanded and it triggered more star formation and the bubble continued to expand. And so now when I see, you know, young star clusters on the outskirts of this local bubble, um, that this is something that, okay, yeah, this is what you expect because now the bubble has like expanded to this point and all of these uh, star clusters are forming at the outskirts where, where the shock waves are hitting it and where the energy from supernovae has been injected into them. Um, and that sounds like a reasonable scenario to me, but I would wonder how you would distinguish that from a scenario where you had, you know, a bunch of different star forming regions that didn't have anything to do with one another, that all blew their own bubbles. And now when we look at it today, 
Uh, it looks like one giant bubble because these different regions have had their gas uh, or the frontiers of their gas and shocks merged together and the inside is cleared out. But I guess looking at the irregular shape of the bubble that's been mapped out, how do you know that it was something that had sort of a a single type of origin instead of something where, oh yeah, this happens in a few different places and, you know, maybe back the last time we were in one of the spiral arms, you had sort of this star formation and now, now we're seeing all of these formerly little bubbles that have fused together. How, how do you distinguish between those two scenarios and and why are you so confident that this has like a single origin instead of being you know sort of the fusion of a bunch of smaller things um so i can try to answer so um it's it's a correlation so the, for me the, the wonderful thing about gaia and and, and about the, our recent results that uh, are also stunning for us is you know Five years ago, ten years ago, we were studying these regions that are now on the surface of the bubble as individual laboratories. And they're, they're all, in our minds, they were totally different things. And we were trying to, to answer questions like, you know, there's massive stars here. Why on the other region, let's say Corona Australis or Taurus, uh, there are no massive stars. We we're trying to use them as laboratories to understand the different processes, why uh, star formation looks different on different clouds. Why are stars, are, as you mentioned before, why there are stars that are not, not even forming clouds? And what was amazing, uh, at least to me, is that it's just one single story now. We connected, they're all related. And there's this wonderful coherence in ages, wonderful co coherence in space and velocities of all the structures that, that surround us. So that's, that's for me what, uh, uh, I don't know if I convince you, but for me, I clearly, uh, I guess we have a different opinion here. Yeah, no, no, side. I don't have a different opinion. I have an additional opinion. So, Ethan, I'm not sure I would make exactly the bottom-up and top-down scenario, so I'm not blaming you for being a cosmologist. But we, when, we, when we worked with the illustrator who made the, um, the still image that you see in the, in the press materials from the paper about the local bubble, you'll see that there's this, this hint of other bubbles in the background. And... And to me, there's the process on, on very large kind of galactic scales where, you know, how it is that you form concentrations of gas on, you know, many hundreds of parsec scales. Uh, in the first place, that's a question for galactic dynamics, and we can get to that another time. But let's say you have that, and then you think of it, this is kind of a weird analogy, but if you think about, you know, a percolating pot of coffee or something that's just kind of constantly bubbling for some reason. Then you just have these bubbles everywhere, right? And so, soup. you know, somebody, well, sorry? Soup is the best. Soup, example. soup. Okay, bubbling soup, sure. And and somebody asked us, one of, one of the members of the press, I can't remember which one, but, but asked, uh, you know, well, are you worried that the sun is in the middle of the local bubble now? And, and we had to say, well, no, because if there's so many of these bubbles, then the sun is just kind of traveling along and there's a lot of empty space and the, the odds are that they'd be in the one of, middle of one of these bubbles. And, and what Joao is saying is that the story where the bubble expands and sweeps up gas into regions that form stars of a diversity within themselves of how they exactly form stars, but the sort of temporal coincidence of that, and then the velocities that Catherine was talking about where they 
kind of trace back to the center of one object gives you a really tight picture that there was this expansion locally that led to the recent star forming regions that you see. But then what you have to understand is that the region that formed the original stars that led to the supernovae that led to the bubble we see now probably formed exactly the same way in in some you know previous collision of things or compression of things in this messy bubbly soup and so you know i think what we see now is just the the current bubble um that that the sun happens to be in and you know, we only entered this bubble about five million years ago, and like Shoao said, the sun is four and a half billion years old. So we've probably passed through many, many bubbles with lots of star formation going on around us, and it's just what we happen to see now. Why it's interesting that we're in exactly, almost exactly the middle of the local bubble, that's a whole separate question we can talk about later. But the idea that we're in some bubble, rather than being exactly at the edge of a bubble, it's just because a lot of space is filled with these empty bubbles. So I don't know if that's any more of an answer, but... But I, I think it's it's kind of a soup, and it's not really top down or bottom up. It's that it depends what scale you look at it from. Well, let me ask you this, and this is probably a question you can't answer. But if we were to take where the sun is right now, you know, and we were to rewind the clock, you know, five, ten, fifteen million years, uh, because as as far as I understand, your paper concluded uh, that this chain of events that blew the local bubble started about 14 million years ago. So let's go back to just before then. And let's not follow the sun back in time as well. Let's stay right here, right where we are now with respect to the, uh, you know, co-rotating Milky Way. Um, if today there's a void, a bubble that's about a thousand light years across, and there are thousands of young stars at the edges of this bubble. What do you think we would have seen 14, 15 million years ago before this had really started forming? Would we have said, oh, we're kind of at the edge of two pre-existing bubbles or, oh, like we're in a region of space where there's just uh, some gas and dust and it's just hanging out and nothing all that interesting is happening. You know, some parts are clumpy or some parts of less are less clumpy. Is that is that a question we can answer? Do we have any idea what we expect things looked like before this bubble got blown in this region of space that we're in right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's nothing uh, magical about the origin of the of this local bubble and, and the cloud that formed it. It's just another cloud with enough mass to form massive stars. So uh, right at the beginning, we were um, about 300 parsecs, exactly, 300 parsecs from it, and it must have been a beautiful show. And, and I think the first thing that will come up was, look, there's a gigantic supernova ahead of us. Obviously, we were not around 50 million years ago. Uh, but we, we have, um, we, it would have looked exactly like any of the regions uh, in, in the Milky Way that's forming massive stars. Uh, for example, Orion. Um, in fact, for another podcast, we have an idea that we actually crossed Orion too, but that's not for now. Uh, so yes, it will look like pretty much a beautiful, massive star-forming region, uh, full of pretty much like a, a smaller versions of uh, Thirty Dorados that you mentioned in the beginning, 
there'll be beautiful nebulas, there'll be jets flying all over the place. And at about a couple of million years since the beginning, there'll be this gigantic explosion that you, we would be able to see um, from Earth uh, with our naked eye. And it will be very beautiful. A couple of million years after the massive cluster would have started to form that has the progenitor for the local bubble, you would have had the first supernova go off that would start blowing what is now the local bubble. And yes, the sun would be kind of far away from that, but we would be able to see this happening the way we see stuff like that happening in massive sparkling regions now. And then we would enter the local bubble, what turns out to be, you know, millions of years a little bit after that, um, you know, after the, so if, if that happened 14 million years ago and we entered the local bubble about 5 million years ago, you know, there's 9 million years in between that we would have been just sort of traveling toward what was going to become the local bubble. Does that mean that when we look at the vicinity around us, that we should be able to find a large population of stars that all formed about 14 million years ago? Does that mean we should be able to find uh, that progenitor population that presumably began from a large, massive star-forming region? Are there are there stars left over from that of about that age that we should expect to find somewhere, either in a in a in a young cluster or in a dissociated cluster? Uh, and if so, do we have any candidates that we can identify as? Hey, maybe you're what started blowing the bubble. Yeah, so uh, to answer your question, we actually know exactly um, which stellar populations created the local bubble. So, of course, um, you have a stellar cluster, and the most massive stars will go supernova, but that cluster, the, the lower mass members of that cluster, will still survive. And so we can actually um, not just see the, the motions of these young stars forming on the surface of the bubble over time, we can actually see this uh, this massive stellar population called uh, SCOSEN. That's the progenitor population for the bubble. We can see that it was at the epicenter of the bubble 14 million years ago. And then we can also see where it is today. And actually, um, if you look at the, the sky from the southern hemisphere, um, it covers this, this surviving stellar population, um, covers a huge fraction of the sky. So you can actually see this with the naked eye. Um, and so we very much know much about this uh, progenitor population. And so that's what makes this so exciting is that the, the, rem the, the remaining members of the cluster that created these supernova are still around and still available to study. And very close to us. They're, 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 they're the closest, of course, the closest young stars were. See, now now I'm embarrassed because I, I read the paper and I didn't even put that together. <clears throat> but But now I guess I should be doubly embarrassed because... Uh, Oh my, that's impressive. You have turned this from a galactic archaeology story into a uh, galactic detective story, and you've solved the case. Like, that's, as far as I'm concerned, like, that's enough to to throw this jerk behind bars forever, um, to say, like, oh, wow, like, this is, this is it. Like, we, we have this theory that, you know, okay, we have this 
thing that would blow this bubble, but then we'd need this large population. And it's not just the new stars forming on the outskirts recently of this bubble. It's, hey, we know what blew this bubble, and it would make sense that if we happen to be in the middle of this bubble, um, that we are looking at uh, stars that formed recently in the past, you know, about 14 million years ago uh, that are still around here because however fast that clump of matter, that star-forming region was moving through the galaxy, that's going to be the dominant effect in blowing the local bubble. So if we happen to enter this bubble 5 million years ago and we happen to be close to the center of this bubble now, then we're going to be really close to these stars. And I, I now want to ask like, ooh, if they're this young, then there should be some that are still pretty massive, you know, maybe some A stars, maybe even some B stars that are still around. These are bright blue stars. Uh, they're not super massive, so uh, all the ones that will have gone, you know, early catastrophic supernova, they've done that already. But but we might still have some stars that that will finish burning through their fuel and end their life in a core collapse supernova nearby that came from this event that formed 14 million years ago. Are there any prominent naked eye stars that you would say, hey, you want to see one of these stars that blew the local bubble and you live in or visit the southern hemisphere? Here's where you look. Is there is there a, a star or a set of stars that you would say, hey, you want to be impressed and go ponder the origins of what happened in our local vicinity 14 million years ago? Look here. <laughs> no, absolutely. So you're 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 making a beautiful introduction to one star, Antares. Antares is a ginormous supergiant, very bright. Uh, in Ophiuchus or, or Scorpius, it's the heart of the Scorpius constellation. It can see the naked eye very, very easily, even from uh, a city. I'm so excited. I know that one. I I live north of the 45th parallel in the northern hemisphere, and I can see Antares in the summer. Exactly. So that's 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 the that's at the heart of this population that uh, populations that uh, Catherine uh, just mentioned, Scosan. And this, this is the one that evolved off the main sequence is now a red supergiant and the next supernova. So they're not, so another way is Skosan is not done forming supernovae. There's still enough massive stars that will end their lives as supernovae. Antares is likely to be the next. And we all know that it's one of the first stars I actually knew about when I was very, very little. <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna prove how much of a theorist and how little of I of an observer I am. But uh, you know you've you've said Skosen a few times, and I'm just gonna assume that this is because it is something that spans the constellations of Scorpius and Centaurus, and that's why it's Very called Skosen. You passed. Questions that aren't about stars, because it turns out that. Like the story that Catherine told you about, um, you know, everything coming back together to a point and the velocities all working out, that that makes it look like, you know, we had a plan. But, um, but, but, but we didn't start looking for all of this until we understood what the whole region looked like in three dimensions. Because you have to appreciate one thing, which is that 
if you say where is the local bubble on the sky that's kind of an amusing question right because we're inside of the local bubble so Catherine started to tell you before about 3d dust mapping and Gaia and you know this sort of revolution of understanding the distances to things and so you mentioned Colby and you know Colby made a fantastic map of the thermal dust emission all over the sky but it couldn't tell you anything about the distances to the dust clouds that were associated um, with those blobs that you would see on the sky. So I'm hoping that you're going to ask us questions that aren't about stars. Well, I guess if you want me to drive this car into the ravine, let's go and do it. So, um, you know, we'll Thelma and Louise it right now. So, <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, stars are stars are of course uh, prominent. They're easy to see. They're the they're the way we're most familiar with the astronomical world since time immemorial. But also, we know there's plenty of other things out there. There's dust. There's gas. And so, um, you know, one of the huge things then is if you want to say where are the frontiers of this dust? How far does this void extend? What you need to do is you need to make a three dimensional map of not just the stars, but you need a three-dimensional map of the gas. You know, you mentioned Gaia for the stars, and Gaia is great, but Gaia has this uh, cheat code built into it, that Gaia is in orbit around the Earth. So when six months go by and the Earth has moved by 300 million kilometers or 186 million miles from its position six months ago, you can measure parallax. And if you have better mirrors and better optics and better instruments, you can resolve parallaxes to narrower and narrower and narrower uh, angular separations. So it's just sort of like when you hold your thumb at arm's length and you switch your left eye, your right eye, your left eye, your right eye, you see your thumb move relative to the background of whatever you're looking at. Um, that's what Gaia is doing to, as you said, hundreds of millions and then even into billions of stars in the Milky Way. So to get something for a distance for something that's a thousand light years away or less, that's like that's like low-hanging fruit for the Gaia mission. That's like a child reaching up and picking the bright, shiny red apple that's super close on the low-hanging branch on the tree. But now I say, okay, now forget about the stars, forget about everything Gaia can do. What about this dust? What about this gas? What about this matter, this interstellar matter that exists, you know, just in space? How do we map that out? You know, you, 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 we've talked about how, okay, like previous satellites could detect it and they could see it, but you're really only getting that two-dimensional projection. So if you want that third dimension, if you want to know how far away is this gas, is this dust, is this neutral matter, is this partly ionized or excited matter, um, wherever we look, in whatever direction we look on the sky... How do we go and make that map? Jeez, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> hey, guess what? The answer is stars. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's stars. It's all about stars. Sorry, but not Elisa. directly. So, so, so long ago, we used to we used to be proud that we had quote unquote three dimensional maps of the interstellar medium using these spectral lines that I was telling you about. But the third dimension was velocity. And yes, if you're a cosmologist, velocity is the same as distance. But in the local interstellar medium, that is not true. 
And so it was very, very hard to have distance measurements to these clouds, even though you might know this one is separate from this one because it's at a different velocity. You still couldn't say exactly, you know, how many parsecs away was it. And so what Catherine started to explain before is that this 3D dust mapping has been done for at least a decade, and, and a lot of it was done in a, in a group of our colleague, uh, Doug Finkbeiner, with a bunch of students at Harvard. But then the, the dust map that's actually been used, we should just be clear, uh, was made by a, a group uh, led by uh, Torsten Enslin uh, in Germany. And what the difference has to do with different statistical techniques, but the approach is the same, where it does rely on stars, okay? And uh, my colleagues are laughing because I have to say stars. Um, and so it's all about that the, the smoke, the dust in the interstellar medium, changes the color of stars. And I think what Catherine was saying before, I can't remember how much of this she said now, but is if you have measurements of the stars at different colors, you can figure out how much change in the color has been caused by some amount of dust along the line of sight to a particular star. And so you, when you said cheat codes and Gaia, I thought you were going to say something else because in the 3D dust mapping, it used to be necessary to try to disentangle the three-dimensional distribution of dust from the three-dimensional distribution of stars and measure the distances to all of these things simultaneously in one big equation. Uh, you know, that would be solved numerically. But... Now, if you have the distances to these stars from Gaia, this, that is the cheat code. That becomes much, much easier than to get very high distance resolution in these 3D dust maps. And so it's really Catherine here who did so much of the work on actually using distance measurements first to discover the, the Radcliffe wave, which is a paper um, that Joao led a couple of years ago, and then most recently to map out the three-dimensional, not just positions, but shapes of all the molecular clouds that we now know to be on the surface of the local bubble. So I should let Catherine say more, but I'll just end this by saying that, you know, I'm not young, but I'm not that old, but I still never saw, never thought that I would see three-dimensional maps of molecular clouds in my lifetime, like real three-dimensional maps. And so putting that together to figure out that they all sat on the surface of the local bubble. It was just like icing on the cake, sort of almost spherical cake, but, but icing on the cake. And so, so Catherine, Catherine's our, our distance measurer, and Joao is our, 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 our brilliant requester of distances. Well, let me, let me ask this question for Catherine then explicitly. Um, so Catherine, um, if this were something that were known back when I was an undergraduate, uh, I have a feeling that I would have said something like, hey, um, astronomer who discovered this, um, can you sort of tell me uh, how we know that the bubble goes on for this extent in this direction and that extent in that direction um, and, and how we make that measurement? But back then, um, I probably would have had to ask some old white man astronomer, which was pretty much every astronomer I knew when I was an undergrad, except Ron Tam, who was Asian, um, and they would have said to me, extinction, and that would have been it, and I would have had to go away and figure the rest out. Um, so can you tell me now, um, you know, okay, it is extinction, but, but how do we... How do we make this measurements? What are the things we look for? Because I, I know the difference between a star 
that doesn't have gas and dust in front of it and a star that does have gas and dust in front of it. But how do we figure out um, how far away this bubble goes based on all of these different measurements of stars? Yeah, so the, the crux of the issue is that uh, you need a ton of stars and you also need a lot of computing power in order to process it. So we're not just talking about a few stars, but the, the very high resolution map of these uh, nearby dust clouds um, that Alyssa mentioned was led by uh, the Information Field Theory Group at MPA, Thorsten Ensign's group. Uh, they used millions, and millions of stars in their calculations. And so when you combine, uh, essentially look at how um, the, this dust affects the colors of stars at known distances, for not just a few stars, but millions of stars, uh, you can create these very high resolution maps. And then there are various ways to model the local bubble, but essentially because the local bubble is a region of lower density, you can essentially figure out uh, where, uh, looking outward from the sun, where is the point uh, uh, where you reach any sort of material, whether it's fluffy or dense. If you do this over the, over the full surface of the bubble, you can use these very high res resolution maps um, to create models of where the local bubble is. And then you can compare it with other ways to trace the local bubble using x-rays um, or using various other techniques. Um, and we found that they all agree. Um, so that was good. And so it's not just a single star, but many stars. And it's looking at these 3D dust maps in new ways to actually try to figure out uh, where you see this boundary between um, uh, not a lot of dust and a lot of dust, but the critical point is that because we're inside of this bubble, um, all of the stars that are outside of the bubble will have um, much more different colors than the stars inside the bubble. So there'll be a sharp change at the bubble boundary, and so that also helps us out a lot as well. So this is this sounds very similar to like when we look at a different galaxy and we see, okay, um, Let's say this is something I learned looking at the uh, panchromatic Hubble Andromeda Treasury project is uh, sometimes you'll look at a region of space and you will see there's a bunch of stars and they have, you know, colors that are on the bluer side. And sometimes you'll look at a region of stars and you'll see it's like all of the colors have been dimmed, like someone took the slider on your image editor on your computer and just made all the colors redder or took the blues away or changed the hue and saturation. Um, and I learned pretty quickly that this depends on whether the stars that you're seeing are primarily on the near side of the galactic plane or the far side of the galactic plane. Because Andromeda, just like the Milky Way in most spiral galaxies, has a plane of dust, a thin plane of dense dust that runs through the center. So if you are looking at stars that are on the far side of that dust plane, that dust is going to block and redden all of the background stars. Whereas if you're looking at stars on the near side of that plane, the dust is on the opposite side, it won't block that. Is that basically Basically, what we're doing for the stars in the Milky Way, we're just saying like, okay, um, I'm going to see both populations. And so when I measure the distances of the stars that have that reddened effect, especially if I have huge numbers of stars, then I know they're on the far side, they're outside of the local bubble. Whereas if they, if they aren't reddened that severely, then they're on the inside of the local bubble. Is that, is that how we do it? Yes, um, it's even more complicated than that because 
you also need to know something about the intrinsic stellar type and the color of the star. And so that's part of the modeling as well. Um, and so you're trying to infer the color change due to the extinction and the distribution of colors that you started with. And so if you have a lot of stars, you can kind of gloss over that distribution of colors a little bit. Um, but what, what really we should explain is that it's not just that this was used to map out just some one layer of dust along the line of sight, but you have stars at many different positions on the sky and many different distances. So you can think of space as essentially being filled, like peppered with these stars. And so what you're really doing is inferring neighboring stars, which one is behind something, which one is in front of something, and then a little further over what's what's behind and what's in front. And you're sort of putting together these little tiny pixels of, of two-dimensional layers into a three-dimensional set of voxels. So it's not just trying to find the distance to a sheet, which is much easier. You can think of each pixel maybe as finding different to several sheets, but then those things are put together into an actual three-dimensional picture, which is what Catherine allowed sorry, allowed Catherine to publish this very important paper um, that preceded the local bubble paper where she showed the three-dimensional shapes of all of these clouds that Joao mentioned before. We used to study as kind of independent star forming regions that were all over the sky. And what I was trying to explain is that you, you can't put them back together into the surface of the local bubble unless you take yourself in, in a visualization outside of the galaxy or outside of our view of the sky and in some way put this all back together into the three-dimensional picture that the dust mapping gives you. And then you can see these little worm-like clouds on the surface of this bubble um, and start doing the kind of physical analysis that Catherine told you about before, looking for the you know common center of expansion of all of these clusters that measure the velocities of the little worms, of the little clouds that we now see in three dimensions. But well, we just don't want to give the impression that we were, that first of all, we didn't make the, the map of the local bubble with 3D dust mapping. That was the Pelgrims et al. paper. Um, what was important uh, was putting the star forming regions, which have much, you know, they have their own kind of exquisite shapes, but onto the surface of this bubble. So it's, it's, uh, a little bit more than your Andromeda example. Is it maybe a better example to sort of say, okay, uh, let's imagine that the stars in the Milky Way are like blueberries in a very giant and generous blueberry muffin. And, uh, you know, I, I basically am going to have some shape for the local bubble where if I could be outside and see into the blueberry muffin it's sort of like I took this uh instantaneous little uh plastic sheet that I baked into the muffin and I can say okay some of these blueberries are going to be inside the sheet some of these blueberries are going to be outside of the sheet I'm going to have star clusters which is like a dense collection of blueberries in the sheet or in one side of the sheet and uh and then that that little plastic sheet in there is like sort of the boundary of that local bubble is that is that maybe an okay way to visualize this i i haven't had breakfast yet well now you're making me hungry but let's see the you can imagine that so the supernova takes the stuff in between the 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 blueberries and accumulates it and creates this shell uh without 
you know the dough. It's just you just have the then the stars inside. Uh, but I'm not. It's just. It's let, just let me go with a different baking story. So you're you're telling two stories at the same time. One where we're talking about the the stars and and three D dust mapping, and then one where we're talking about the actual clusters and clouds and the bubble. And so to get back to what I think you were originally saying in the baking story, imagine that you have the stars, as you're putting it, right, that are used in the three D dust mapping, are like say poppy seeds in what would be disgusting in my opinion, but a marbled chocolate poppy seed muffin. Okay, and so there's like swirly chocolate. And what you're saying is you, you, to do the 3D dust muffin, you're in the middle of this muffin and you can tell how much chocolate there is between you and any poppy seed, okay, along any line of sight. And you can then rebuild the distribution of all this chocolate swirliness, okay? And so in our case, there is no chocolate in the middle of this muffin, right? All of the swirliness is kind of in this weird bubble in this muffin, okay? And then there's concentrations where there's more chocolate, which is the um, the clouds, the star-forming clouds. And then there's a different set of stars, not the stars that are used for 3D dust mapping, that are important. There are the stars that are the young stars that are associated with each of those molecular clouds. And then let's not talk about muffins anymore. This will get too confusing unless it's a blueberry chocolate swirl poppy seed muffin or something and then the blueberries okay fine are the individual star forming regions that have young stars in them whose positions and velocities you can measure with Gaia so Gaia is used twice but in two different kind of baking procedures there's too many analogies going on at the same time but anyway the the 3d dust is really kind of figuring out where the swirl of stuff is in the midst of all these poppy seeds, um, and then the uh, the empty space is between the the infamous blueberries, and there's other stars whose velocities you measure, but also with Gaia. Is that at all helpful? I think this is great. I think this is great. I mean, we're all hungry oh, now. I really don't want to eat a blueberry poppy seed chocolate muffin. That seems disgusting to me. <laughs> You know, I I would I would maybe think so, but I would also say like with everything, don't knock it till you've tried it, and I've definitely never tried it. I think one thing that did come up earlier that we haven't come around to yet is uh why is the sun in the middle? Why is the sun and the solar system in the center of this void? Is this is this really just a coincidence thing where where we move through the galaxy and these clusters that create and blow these bubbles are occur randomly through this galaxy? And, you know, you say, look, when you look up at any one time, you got to be somewhere and here's where we are. And if we had looked up five million years earlier, we would have been on the edge of the bubble. If we had looked up uh, two million years earlier, we would have been like halfway between the center and the edge of the bubble, like where the sun is in the Milky Way. But we happen to look up where we are now. And if we were to look up six or seven million years from now, we'd be at the edge of the bubble again. Is this is this just a question of, ah, yeah, it's just a coincidence or is there some reason that we're close to the middle of the bubble. Yeah, so basically uh, what we're finding is that uh, the local bubble is, is, of course, not the only bubble around. So we have evidence that it's interacting and touching a number of other bubbles in our galactic neighborhood. 
And so you can imagine that if we moved our sun 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 light years to the left or right or top or bottom, mostly as long as you stay in the, in the, in the disk of the Milky Way, if you shift the sun around, that we would be in a different bubble and that, that new bubble would now be called the local bubble. And so if this whole sort of medium of the Milky Way is very bubbly, you would expect to be in one of these super bubbles a large fraction of the time. And because the local bubble is so large, it's especially a large bubble, you would expect just statistically speaking to be located near the center of it at any sort of one time that you're sampling. Um, and so it's, uh, it's not surprising that we find ourselves near the center of the bubble given um, this physical scenario of this bubbly Milky Way that we think um, is really happening in our galaxy. Okay, okay. So you're basically saying, look, that we're in a bubble is, is cool. Like we can measure it, we can see where the smoke is in the universe, where the dust is in the universe, and we know that, you know, uh, overall, uh, we are in the center of this roughly thousand light year wide, you know, potato shaped void that uh, that was blown by the history of the stars that have formed here in our in this vicinity of space recently. But if we weren't in this bubble, there's a good chance we'd be in a different adjacent bubble or in a different non-adjacent bubble because this appears to be what the galaxy is, is that it's a series of bubbles that get blown, that push the dust and gas around, uh, and the dust and gas that gets pushed around will form new stars. And then when you get a large enough star forming region, that one will start to blow its own bubble and it's going to supersede the old bubbles. So, so now, uh, to go with a different food analogy, now I'm picturing a, a, a child with a straw and a glass of chocolate milk just blowing bubbles into there where the old bubbles come up and they get sort of popped and superseded by the new bubbles that, that pop up around it. Is, is that a fair picture at all? Yep, and it's almost dinner time here, so now you're also <laughs> making us up. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think this is fair. Yeah. <laughs> yes, bubbles come and go; they have they have short lives. In interesting. So so they're transient. So is it possible in the future then that we will look for dense clouds of gas that are at the edges of? our local bubble or just outside the edges of our local bubble maybe we'll be able to map out other bubbles by sort of saying okay like here's one big gap in extinction uh but then like here's a big jump in extinction these stars are all redder by this amount but then they're all consistent for a while and then you go beyond that and you see there's another further reddening will it be possible to map out other local bubbles and then at the interfaces of those bubbles to look for dense gas clouds that may someday blow additional bubbles in the future yes the answer is yes we wouldn't call them the local bubble but yes we we already know of a few other bubbles. We, we had another paper just last fall uh, led by Shmuel Bialy uh, call, called the Perseus Taurus Super Bubble. So th we, we know of that bubble. There's another bubble in Orion. Uh, there, are, there are many bubbles uh, that we think we can map out in the, in the coming several years uh, using these techniques.
and and just looking towards the future and sort of like wrapping up this story that that like we're trying to sort of portray in the galactic neighborhood what's really exciting is that in just a few months in june 2022 um we'll get um the the motions and the velocities in true 3d space of many many more stars in the galactic neighborhood so about a factor of five times more and so we'll get a lot more precision, a lot more clarity on sort of the, the fine-grained details of how these young stars are moving, um, and as a result, how these bubbles potentially may be interacting. And so the, the future is very bright for this field, and I think we're all very excited for June 13th, which is when Gaia DR3 will be released and give us this new trove of data to explore. Well, that's very exciting. This episode is going to come out to the general public in early May. So uh, those of you who listen within the first month of this podcast coming out, uh, you know you know what day to look forward to. And uh, Catherine, Alyssa, and Joao, uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot, and hopefully our listeners will have learned a lot as well. Um, you know, mostly when I think about the galaxy, I think about yeah, it has stars, it has gas, it has dust, but I don't think about how they're interrelated. And I think that your work has sort of become the crown jewel in that interrelationship between the star formation history, and in particular, the um, where you have large star forming regions that, you know, inject large amounts of energy into the universe, uh, they sort of blow these bubbles, they push the gas and dust around, they create and carve these voids and these structures. Um, and instead of looking at this like you have a continuum of dust, uh, this is the last food analogy, I promise. Um, you have Swiss cheese instead, that you have sort of this whole like structure uh, with uh, denser regions um, between the holes where most of this uh, material is collected. And it's fascinating to think that that is probably where we should look for as the sites of future star formation in the Milky Way. So Joao and Catherine and Alyssa, I want to thank you for joining me. Do you have any final thoughts or messages that you would like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, so I just, uh, we didn't get to talk about this uh, today at depth, but I can't uh, underline enough the importance of data visualization in this entire story. So none of the data products that we talked about today that were used to discover the star formation on the surface of the bubble, none of that was proprietary data. It was all available to the public. And all we did was look at this high dimensional data in new and interesting ways, particularly using a software called Glue, which was critical to this discovery. Um, and so really we can't, we can't highlight enough the importance of just looking and combining all these different data sets on our Milky Way and on young stars and on distribution of gas and all of that stuff. So really data visualization played a key role here that uh, we just wanna sort of praise highly the software tools that we used. I think that also highlights spectacularly uh, the fact that all of this data is there. All of this data has been there, um, 
but you have to look at it in the right way in order to put it together um, so that if you are a young person out there thinking like, oh, all the interesting things have already been measured, like, yeah, uh, but just because the pieces of the puzzle are there doesn't mean that anyone has successfully put that puzzle together yet. There are plenty of open questions out there where perhaps that data already exists and it just needs the right person or the right team to come along and look at what we already know in the right way to put that together for all of us. And then, oh, wow, look at what spectacular discoveries might arise. I agree. I agree. So I, if I want to say something at the end, I just stress what you just said regarding people, the young people entering the field. We never set out to find a local bubble and we never set out to find the relative wave. Um, and we're living in extraordinary times when the data, for example, that the Gaia data on the June 13th, the, the data release, will be available to anyone in the world, uh, professionally or not, with the internet connection. And anyone can go and play with the data. And anyone is bound, if you play enough, like we're doing, to find something completely new. Uh, so I think this, this is my message for stressing what you just said, though. Anyway, it was very nice meeting you. <laughs> it was nice for me as well. Alyssa, do you have anything you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap things up? Well, first of all, that we're all sitting in the same room here in Vienna and that I was mouthing to Catherine and Joao, you two took the two things I wanted to say, uh, sort of the importance of visualization, uh, which is ironic given that this is a podcast and so it's been very hard. We've been waving our hands and talking about ridiculous muffins and so I hope that people will go look at the website that was made for the project. That's that's thing one. And then Joao hinted at, you know, we, we didn't intend to find any of these things, you know, for the Radcliffe Wave. Uh, Catherine and Joao worked very carefully together to try to find the distances to all these nearby clouds just because it was suddenly possible. And then it turned out they were in this gigantic weird shape that nobody anticipated. And then for the local bubble, it's like, wow, you know, we have all these maps of clouds. Why don't we see where they are? Oh, they seem to be on the surface of this amazing local bubble. And, oh, and how yeah. are all the stars moving? And look at all the stars seem to move like this is a consistent story. And so it's not like we just accidentally stumble on these things, you know, but we're, we're often looking for something else. And then we sort of have enough background knowledge to, to um, yes, accidentally uh, figure out new things about the universe. And so I would just stress again for the people who are coming into the field or thinking about how to have fun. Um, in science, it's perfectly fine to just go playing around looking for one thing and then find something else more interesting and work on that. So that's what I would say. Yeah, it's amazing the discoveries that have been made both in this instance and also throughout history just from having your own unique toolkit, having your own unique set of knowledge and applying it to a data set or a set of data sets that you know of. When you get to look at this, a lot of the biggest discoveries that have been made in the history of science haven't been because you made an observation that was just groundbreaking. It's been because you've been able to synthesize things together in a way that no one else has been able to put these things together in before. And I want to thank all of you, Alyssa, Catherine, and Joao, for joining us and sharing this remarkable discovery with us. Those of you who are listening who want to check out more about the local bubble and the discovery, um, there will be links to uh, papers and releases in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the 
image associated with the podcast that is a still from the uh, three-dimensional and uh, real-time uh, or 15 million year time-lapse video uh, that was created. Um, so I'm happy to provide uh, links to all of those things uh, in the notes of the show. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can look forward to that as well. And I'd like to thank all of you, all of our listeners out there for tuning in to the Start to the Bang podcast. The podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go out to Brian Kinsella, Chad Marler, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Chikutas, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Sea Green Mango, Stefan Berniger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech LLC, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Welterding, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Kilio Opu, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, The Human, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabrielle Nader, George Jeff Boutel, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shaw, Steve Shaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Tommy White, Weller Tractor Salvage, and William Vanden Heuvel. Thanks to all of you out there for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. <laughs> <laughs>